Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show, on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. And we are going to explore education from the federal level down. Uh, what does a Trump mean as president with Betty DeVos and uh, Jerry Falwell running the show? And what, did they, what does that mean that they're running the show? These bills before Congress uh, that uh, would limit funding to public schools, give more money to vouchers, and cut our school nutrition program. We'll be exploring that today. And what is this legacy that Trump inherits from Bush to Obama to now Trump? And where is this taking public education? And in some ways, it's a simile to uh, what is happening in the state here with the with the state funding and education, uh, where even the commission coming out now is setting it up as a war between Baltimore City and Montgomery County, which is a mistake as well. So we'll cover as much as we can. Uh, we're here with Dr. Rob Helfenbein. Rob Helfenbein is Associate Dean of the School of Education at Loyola University of Maryland and Interim Chair of Teacher Education at Loyola University of Maryland. And Bob, welcome. Good to have you here at last in the studio, one-on-one. Good to have you. Well, Thanks. Glad to be here. So let's talk about from the this Trump presidency in education, what it means for the federal role in education. You've got Betty DeVos, who has this Secretary of Education, who's got this history of... Um, uh, of wanting to push the privatizing of public education um, for vouchers, uh, taking money away from public schools. You got Jerry Falwell now kind of leading the charge around higher education, where he thinks that public education is the place where these liberals in control of public institutions and they got to get away from them and put it into private institutions. So these are the two people who are going to make push educational policy around Trump. What does this portend for us? Uh, it ain't good. <laughs> <laughs> to put it lightly, yes, and succinctly, if I can start there, start there. I mean, the thing about uh, Betsy DeVos uh, is there actually is a track record, right? So she was former chairman of the Republican Party uh, in Michigan, um, obviously um, part of the billionaire class, which mm-hmm. is a bit of a phenomenon now in terms of um, so-called education reform. Uh, that there, there is a class of people that have, think they've got some answers uh, related to challenges and questions in public education. Um, but what is interesting is that there is actually data on what happened um, in Michigan, uh, Detroit in particular, with the charter schools and voucher program that she really championed. And um, the data, it does not support these policies. They've got um, a horrible system of lacks accountability when it comes to charters. Uh, So some of the charters that she's actually supported are underperforming traditional public schools and they're getting renewed and they're expanding, right? So one of the things that a lot of folks don't understand is the connection between charters and vouchers uh, and privatization. Um, Charters are public schools and I know this is controversial in Maryland, right? So let me let me be clear up front. I understand that the law is different in the state of Maryland, and I think that's fantastic, but I also understand that that is under threat, right? So when folks oftentimes are talking about charters uh, in the national conversation or in other states, what they're talking about are for-profit charters, where that, that's not um, allowed in the state of Maryland, but it is in Michigan, it is in Indiana, uh, where, I was, um, where I lived for 10 years. And so it gets confusing. Um, and it's certainly not what charter schools were intended to be. They were supposed to be these kind of experimental um, idea places, innovation spaces that could then uh, influence what's happening in traditional public schools. What's happened is they've been kind of um, 
taken uh, taken into the corporate kind of model and um, as a source to make money, right? So for-profit schools have have been. Um, do they make money? Some of them, do. yeah, some of them do. Um, and then, unfortunately, there's also a, a ton of stories about fraud, um, financial malfeasance. Uh, there's a whole catalog uh, of stories there. One of the problems is they're, they're often, uh, because it's kind of an alternative model, they're not uh, employing, either in leadership and sometimes at the classroom level, folks that are trained educators um, or an administrator that is trained in things like school law. Um, and the uh, limitations of what you can do financially. So there's a whole raft of research out here that basically says most of these claims that are being made don't hold up. I mean, but part of it is, is, is also that <clears throat> just like the, the push against the Trump's push against journalism and journalists, um, and you can be a critical of, of, of established journalism, and that's another right. conversation, but, but that, that there's fake news. And so the same kind of critique has been going after teachers and people who study in schools of education, that they are the problem. That's right. Because they don't know what they're talking about. They don't teach right. They don't teach their kids. That's why our kids are failing. So, I mean, that, so that's the argument saying, we don't need you. Mm -hmm. We can go somewhere else and that's get right. our, for our kids what they need. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there's a logic there, right? Um, uh, you kind of asked a question related to the history, uh, like from Bush to Obama to Trump. <clears throat> yeah. But when, when Obama um, publicly said that public education is broken, uh, on the campaign trail for his first election, uh, I knew we were in trouble uh, because that's a split with uh, the traditional Democratic Party and their view. He was asked specifically in, in one of those early debates, you know, where do you where do you break from the Democratic Party? It's kind of a standard campaign question, and he didn't miss a beat and said education. So that was a uh, a bit of a of a portend of things to come, uh, which basically played out. Right where the Obama education policy, most of us that were paying attention, saying this is just Bush's third and fourth term. Why? Why so? Uh, it was a support of um, charter schools. It was the there was there wasn't federal funding for it necessarily, but there was support for voucher programs. There was uh, disinterest in the union uh, and little support for the the unions that are still around, uh, teachers unions. And um, there was uh, enhanced accountability, right? So most famously, um, there was also the race to the top funding. Race to the top, right. right. Right, which tied some things to Common Core, which was not an Obama initiative. That was actually Republican governors that, that did that. But again, the I can't tell which news is fake or not anymore, but, <laughs> but the, <laughs> you know, that that was portrayed, Common Core was portrayed as kind of a federal government overstep uh, into public education, and, and that's not its history. So, would you argue that public schools are not in crisis? I would argue that it's probably not the crisis you think it is. What do you mean by that? <laughs> so, what I've often said is, I, I think it's actually quite difficult to argue that public education <clears throat> is broken. Hmm. Uh, if you take a look at things like literacy rates, high school graduation rates, which we're doing a better job of um, measuring. There's been some shenanigans in how to count those things. You've seen those stories, I'm sure. College attendance. Um, these are, you can also break these down by socioeconomic status or racial groups um, or um, special needs. All those numbers are up, right? What people misunderstand about something like 
the achievement gap, which is not even my favorite language. But that achievement gap, I think it's more of an opportunity gap than an achievement gap. But those lines are all going up, right? The gap refers to the, the distinction between, let's say, um, eighth, grader, eighth grade reading scores between white populations, black populations, Latino, or maybe socioeconomic status. That's what the gap is. But I think when most people hear that, they think, oh, we're getting worse. We're not getting worse. We're getting better consistently across the board. So again, college, college attendance, college graduation, graduate school attendance, even broken, by, broken down by those subgroups. Um, teenage pregnancy is down. Teenage drug use is down. School violence is actually down. That's not what people tend to think because of the way the, it, it does get covered in the media. But all of those are, are positive indicators. Now, if you want to argue that the world is changing a whole lot faster than our education system, then I'm with you. But to argue that it's broken seems to me pretty hard to defend. But <coughs> Pardon me, we'll cut that. <coughs> <clears throat> but I mean, w- before we come back to the the, the, the main line of what we're talking about here, which is what's going to happen to the federal government and public education here, w- what about the the discussion in places like Baltimore, the cities, yeah. <clears throat> where the reading levels of our children and math levels are so low? Yeah. I mean, and kids who come out of some of the most desperate po- poverty in the history of the United States, uh, because it's also isolating poverty in the midst of neighborhoods that are abandoned looking um, and children just not performing. So, I mean, so it's, people look at that and say that's a failure of public education. Oh, yeah. Kids are graduating and they can't read. They have to go to remedial programs when they hit uh, community colleges because they can't read the work in community colleges. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And, and, and I don't in any way want to say um, that that isn't part of the reality that we should, be, we should be talking about. But what's happening is it's really concentrated poverty. Right. Also, in terms of um, in this conversation around education, that's what we're increasingly doing. Right. Is we're creating these pockets of um, extreme and intense poverty. In fact, we're reversing what has worked. Right. Which was really the efforts of desegregation. Right. So if you see some again, not my favorite term, but the achievement gap that we cut that in half during the 80s. Right. And how did we do that? Well, that's when desegregation uh, practices were in full effect. Right. And as we know, in this country, race and poverty are correlated. Right. So as we experimented with new ways to kind of diversify across a school district, what we saw was um, scores went up and the gaps between groups went down. All that's now being reversed. I mean, in fact, that's what I, I really think is probably most troubling is we have a pretty good record. We don't know everything in terms of what works, but we know a lot of things. And in fact, what we're doing now is rolling those back. I think that's true in education. I think it's true in terms of voting rights, as we think about voter suppression. Um, Almost any of these indicators, we have some things we can point to that that works. We know that concentrated poverty is negative. We know that, right? We've known it for 20, 30 years at least, that same process is starting to happen again in education as we roll back um, what I think were some of the successes of the 60s, 70s, and then implemented into the 80s. So going back to the federal issues, so so you have the federal government under Trump, you're saying, which is even different than Obama and Bush, even though we might disagree with how they implement, you might disagree with how they implemented 
um, educational issues and testing and um, and the rest, uh, the core curriculum developed by Republican governors and more, um, they funded education. You can argue about what they funded, how they funded it, but we're, we're facing something that compounds. That's right. What what they introduced. That's right. So the the research on charters and vouchers are in fact that what they end up doing is resegregating. Um, they're sold as uh, these solutions to folks in poverty. That's the way Trump talked about it on the campaign trail, right? That's not what happens in implementation. So, and I can tell you firsthand from uh, being uh, in Indiana, which was something of the point of the spear in the education reform movement. These were sold as, as ways to help um, um, poor city kids open up the gates to the, to the elite private schools um, to these, these poor city kids. Well, those gates weren't thrown open. And certainly, the vow, one, they didn't, those schools t- didn't tend to want those kids, and they don't have to take them. And then the vouchers weren't enough to actually cover the full tuition. Right. So what's being sold as a choice is, in fact, not a choice at all. But that choice, some people argue that, the, the, that well, that choice has to do more, more, more with parochial schools. You take a place like Baltimore or D.C. or New Orleans, it means that kids can go to Catholic schools, and um, which is an argument that they, they make for vouchers. And, that, and then, you know, viscerally, speaking with just a moment, I'm thinking to yourself, if I'm a poor dad, um, struggling to make ends meet. I got my few kids, and I need, want to get them into school. And that school down the street is just not cutting it for my children. Uh, but I can get this money to put my kid in the Catholic school that's like five blocks away, where I know there's going to be some discipline. They're going to control the school, and my kids going to be okay. Give me the money. Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me let me put my kid there. I mean, that's part of the yeah, right. And, and that's a very I think that's a very American you know kind of um, <clears throat> understanding. Choice sounds good. Um, we tend to like it. Um, what I would push back on is that. Um, it's rarely that simple. So one, uh, but I, I do want to recognize the point that there are a lot of families in Baltimore and all over the country. All over the country, right? Right. That what they want they want there's somebody to teach their kid how to read, and it's not happening where they're at. So I get that, right? The, these are very real challenges. But what's being sold to us isn't doesn't tend to do what it promises. So you might find that school five blocks down the road, but really what might be the best fit for you is actually 25 blocks down the road. And how are you going to get your kid there? And how do you get your kid home? And, um, you know, how does this connect with issues related to public transportation? Um, So these choices are sold and they sound good, but they're usually not. Um, They don't produce and they usually are not actually choices. The other thing that's interesting is, you know, folks actually tend to like their community schools, right? Um, I think I used to be a, a high school teacher, right? So, I mean, you know this. I mean, that's the first question in Baltimore. If you if you grew up here, where'd you go to school? Where'd you go to school? Where'd you, where'd I, I learned you go to high school. I learned that real right. quick, right? Um, but part of that is is that schools historically have been a, a major part of the fabric of a community. You go to the football game on Friday night, right? Maybe you go see the school play or whatever it might be. There, there is this kind of um, sense that schools are really one of the hubs of, of communities. And that's what's interesting is we've had, you know, some version of school choice um, for years, right, for, for 20 years. When it was first rolled out as part of No Child Left Behind, right, in the terms of the federal uh, policy there, what was interesting is less than 2% of the families that could choose a different school actually did. 
They didn't, they didn't take that choice. They stayed with their community school. Now, you can say, well, did folks know enough in order to make uh, a so-called better choice? I don't, that's, a, that's a good question. But that's also part of it, right? You can't, how is that father supposed to make that call, right, of whether the school that he currently sends his kid to now versus the one five blocks down the road or 25 blocks, where, how is that market going to work? The market logic is is based on equal information, which is false, right? I mean, that's since, you know, when do you actually have equal information? But what what then is the obligation to say, here's here are the markers that everybody needs to know so those parents can make the best choice for their children? There's a lot of work to be done before that is actually in place. So what what would be the what do you think the upshot could be over the next year? four years of Trump in the White House, or maybe Pence in the White House, however it shakes out in the next four years, uh, but whoever that is, um, and and the future of public education. I mean, one of the things there's talked about in his state, in his, what do they call it? Some people call it state union speech, but a 10% across the board cut, cutting part of education, EPA, a bunch of other things. But if you have this cuts to education, and you have a philosophy in there from Betty DeVos and Jerry Falwell that things need to go to be, be privatized, well, I mean, what do you think's gonna happen? And then you talked about this bill that was trying to lean in that direction as well. Well, yeah, I think there's a lot that remains to be seen, right? So, what are we, a month in, you know? Right, five yeah. weeks, I think, right? <laughs> right. Like that. right, right. Um, so there's a real question, how much does Trump actually care, right, about um, public education and, and how, how much energy is gonna be devoted to some kind of education policy? But the big thing about the federal level in the DOE is, is Title I. Right. And so Title One is federal money that supplements um, the state level money for kids coming uh, coming to schools from poverty. Right. So if I don't know where that 10 percent comes from or whatever the cut is, if um, without thinking about Title One. So something like Baltimore City Public Schools is 100 percent. It's a Title One district, meaning every school is a Title One school. So to me, what's really um, frightening is that th- those supports uh, could be at risk. And that could be devastating in places like Baltimore and Newark and any other kind of city Absolutely. in New Orleans, Chicago, whoever, wherever. Absolutely. These schools count on, on that funding. So, and then you already have Baltimore City schools and places like Baltimore being underfunded. It's not a right. unique case in this country. Right. Right? Um, and... You mentioned stats, which would be really interesting to explore uh, another day in some real depth with you and others, which is the, the <clears throat> what happened during desegregation with scores going up and people learning how to read and mm-hmm. and more, which is an interesting phenomenon, but you're not going to have, A, there are people who argue we don't need an international school system for our children, that you know we just need better schools. B, uh, in places like Baltimore or Newark or other places around the country, um, there will... There will uh, we're not going to have integrated schools in that sense, mm-hmm. class or race. I mean, we have a school system. Eighty-six percent of the kids are African American, and probably the majority of those children are come from poor homes. Right. That's right. But it seems to me that's exactly the the project to work against, right? Because we 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 also we know what happens. Right. So um, unfortunately, the history of public education in this country has largely been that the children with the most need get the least. And from the get-go, we funded education based on property values, right? So what does that mean? Well, it means rich kids go to rich schools. Poor kids go to poor schools. 
So what do you think? This is? So, where, so in terms of your arguing pragmatically and philosophically, where do we go? And given so, what the and what will the battle be with this new federal government? Well, I, I you know, so one of the things we mentioned was this House Resolution six ten, which my understanding is that it's it's held up in committee now and won't won't go forward. But I would encourage folks to take a look at that, because it is a repeal of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act of nineteen sixty five, um, which was part of really civil rights legislation to try to take on um, disparity and, and inequity in schools. And it's the beginning of a whole um, movement of um, the federal government trying to encourage a more equitable education system uh, across the states. So that includes, it's the first um, legal mention of uh, what are the requirements for students with special needs. It's got Title I funding trying to address poverty. Um, and if that is now in danger of being repealed, it seems to be uh, a complete withdrawal from that commitment um, that comes out of the 1960s. So you're kind of you're kind of lumping this in. Not lumping is the wrong word because that, that's a pejorative. But you're kind of um, putting together this attack on this class, on the Act of 1965 for public education, the way we're dealing with voting rights. Act the way we're dealing with other right, other acts that came out post-civil rights mm-hmm. to guarantee equal rights for African Americans, but then broader than that for people in America. So you're saying this is part of that whole push. Yes, push I am. back on what was pushed forward in the '60s. Yes, I am. That's exactly what I'm saying. And I think we need to be um, <clears throat> we need to be in- incredibly vigilant, and I think organized around around these around these issues. So the bill itself is not coming out of committee, but you think that it's deeper than not coming out of committee. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, I mean, what's interesting about the bill, right, is it didn't come out of DeVos uh, or the Trump administration. This came out, this was a a resolution, um, you know, put out by members of the House, but I think it's pretty clear of what they intend to do. And that has been kind of the standard party line uh, of the Republican Party has been to shut down the Department of Education. It's, you know, the, the purview of the states. Some often a states' rights argument. Uh, a lot of the recent controversy in education is is cloaked in a states' rights uh, argument. Certainly, the the um, pushback on the Common Core. Um, but that I think it's indicative of kind of the larger political map right now, right? Where we've got this huge unknown um, with the Trump administration, although starting to clear up a little bit. Um, but really, you know, that that's that we're in new territory. Uh, with this president, I th- I think, and I think there's going to be a, it's going to be this exhausting four years of who the hell knows what's coming, you know, every year. But at the same time, you've got the the control of the Republican Party, so they're going to move their agenda uh, regardless. And I think they're going to try to leverage Trump to get done as much of of the things that they've uh, been thinking about all these years um, to the greatest extent that they can. I mean, even Paul Ryan said that, right? He said we we've dreamed of this moment. So they're going to take advantage of it. And this bill, you're talking about H.R. 610, you said it won't come out of committee, is a bill that also gets out of the Hungry Kids Act. Right. As well as taking away money and, and, and putting things in block grants so they can go to vouchers and not go to public school systems. That's right. Right? Right. School lunch nutrition. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to think that we would say we're going to pull back from nutritional standards for school lunches. 
So just the beginning of this. I mean, we don't know what DeVos is going to come up with. We don't know what, how this is going to play out. We don't know what Falwell is going to come up with in terms of uh, looking at higher education. To me, they're having him at the head of the higher education task force is insane mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and frightening. Yeah, yeah uh, higher ed's a whole a whole nother, um, whole nother piece of this. Um, but, I mean, that's being talked about pretty – uh, pretty openly now is that a lot of these cabinet appointees were appointed to basically hollow out their their agencies. Do you think before we get go? Do you think there's a? Um, do you think do, do you see in the work you're doing a resistance building to this um, around the country? And what does that form does that take? I mean, let's just take Baltimore for a minute where we're sitting, um, and uh, we see a school system here with 130 million dollars um, in in the red. And they, they, even though the, the Republican governor Hogan says that that money has uh, he's put more money into it than the other governor, well, yeah, that's a formula. But actually, the reality is that Baltimore City is getting less money per capita when you look at the costs and expenses of the school system itself than it did before. That's right. So we're 130 million dollars in the hole, which we talked about in this program this week. Um, and one person is saying the city school system needs 387 million dollars more. And arguing that then the Montgomery County shouldn't get any, and the Montgomery County comes back and says, "Well, look, what are you talking about? We have three thousand new kids a year, and most of those children don't speak English. Mm-hmm. So, how can you say we don't need more money? We already put seventy percent of our dollars in, and we need money as well. So they're setting people up against each other as well in this argument over who gets money. Is it the wealthy county, Montgomery County, with lots of poor Latino kids coming in, mm-hmm. or is it Baltimore City?" That is where the, the desolate poverty takes place in the inner cities. I mean, that's and so we're setting people up to fight each other over who gets what. Right, but that's a pretty effective strategy, right? And so you you divert the kind of energy right into the infighting uh, instead of um, a more unified unified effort. I mean, we we know um, that. You know, I mean, there's there's studies done on one the investment in public education versus. Um, police forces, incarceration, building of prisons, right? So we know that, right? So the, those costs, um, they get paid somewhere, right, down, down the road. And we've, we've, there's a whole, um, whole pockets of the population that have basically been, been um, completely neglected, if not, if not marginalized, through the way we fund public education. That's consistently true. And the, the, other, you know, the other complication here, Mark, is that you know, all of these things are related. Right. You know, you've got federal government, you got state government, then you've got city government, districts, right. all of that down. And what tends to happen is the can gets kicked down the road. Right. So who then, you know, is going to make the call right, to make sure that schools are funded? And, and the other thing that I think a lot of folks don't understand about school funding is uh, in large urban districts often do have big bureaucracies. Uh, now, some of that is required. Right by compliance with state and federal laws, there are people in offices that don't see kids that you have to have because of compliance with the law. But yeah, there's probably some administrative bloat there. Although certainly in Baltimore, there's been lots and lots of cuts just over the past few years. But what people don't understand about school budget crises is the immediate impact. Right. So the first thing that happens, right, is supplemental staff get cut. They get fired. That's folks like the school nurse the school psychologists, social workers, right? A lot of times folks complain about um, kids not being in school, right? Truancy. Well, whose job is it to work with those kids? That's social workers. You just fired all them, right? So that's the first thing. Um, sometimes administration, et cetera, gets cut. And then teachers, 
um, get fired as well. And what happens? Class size goes up, right? So again, you've got students with the most challenges getting the least quality education, primarily because, you know, if you've got a class of 42, you can't teach the same way that you could if you had 18. Right. And when you say cutting all the people who work with children directly, social workers, psychologists, uh, even people who work in theater and other kind of That's arts, right. working with kids, is you're dealing with children, especially in the poorest community. Every child should have access to mental health care. Every child should have access to art, music, and more. Everyone should have it, which is why people with money put their kids into private schools right. where they can get all that That's right? Right. and get their private lessons at home right. and whatever else they can in the schools. So, so children need that. So, and these are kids, when we talk about kids who come from inner cities around the country and kids who come from some of the poorest rural communities as well, where it's Appalachia on reservations, they suffer from post-traumatic stress. They're living in the midst of desolation and violence every day of their lives. Mm -hmm. And that's never taken into account when we talk about what we have to fund to take care of of our children, to make sure they come out whole. That's right. We have schools in we have schools in Baltimore City right now with black plastic bags over the water fountains because there's lead in the water, right? I've talked to kids that talk about rats, you know, running through the classroom during the school day. So what kind of message? What do you think a young person learns when they understand the kind of commitment, right, that we have to those school facilities? They know very well, right, that, that the, the, these systems are set up for fail. So it seems to me that's what I was trying to do the other day on the show when we had representatives from both Montgomery County and Baltimore City on the air with us who represent in this General Assembly their, their, their communities, which is saying, that can you, can you create a united front for all the children? Right? I mean, right. That, and that's we, we separate it out, that, and we don't realize this is one, we're one. Right. So we kind of separate them out. Well, you know, the, 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 they're so rich they can take care of everything, and you have the money, and we give you too much money as it is, so forget about it. Right. That's that's where we are. So they agreed to that, of course. And no, they actually talked. <laughs> they, 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 they mouthed the right words. The question is, do we get there? Yeah, how do we I, get I don't there? mean respect to what they were saying, but, yeah. you know, I mean, that that can they form that kind of thing saying, no, we demand right. that you take more money out of this and make sure that we have, you know, if, if, they, if they did things like in Baltimore, let me digress for a moment, then we come right back to this. Yeah. So I'm going to ask some questions about pedagogy and how this fits into this. Yeah. But... If if you if you if Maryland insisted that all the revenues, all the revenues we get from casinos and gambling, which was the lie they told us in the beginning, they, they didn't quite lie, but they didn't tell us the whole truth, made us think this is what they were doing. Yeah, which is true in every state of the country. It's right? the same lie. Same, same lie. Yep. If that money was put into schools, then you we might have the budget for it to take care of the issues. Baltimore might get a three eighty seven. Montgomery County might be able to get the extra $150 million, whatever it needs, mm-hmm. to take care of the kids who don't speak English. I mean, and, and build the schools they need because they have 3,000 new kids a year. I'm saying that we, that, 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 that's the argument that has to take place. If we care about the kids, we're going to fund it. That's right. Take care of them. That's right. But, I mean, the, there, there's a playbook here, right? <laughs> you know, whether it's lottery, casinos, whatever it is, it's the same argument. And I would argue it's the same argument being used now about school vouchers. It's the, it's the same argument. Um, and so far, the track record is it does not it does not come through for it. We have to take a short break, but stay with us, folks. When we come back, I'm going to continue my conversation for you with Dr. Rob Effenbein, who is Associate Dean of the School of Education at Loyola University of Maryland, where he is also Interim Chair of Teacher Education. Stay with us. We'll be right back to explore more about the underbelly of education. 
We're talking here with uh, Dr. Rob Helfenbein, who is Associate Dean of the School of Education at Loyola University of Maryland, where he is also Interim Chair of Teacher Education. And so let me talk for a moment. We, we, we talked a bit about this earlier before. And again, and I, I want to get back to the Trump administration before we leave out today. But um, when we were discussing what the, the kids that are failing in our city schools and, and, and not making the grade and the... And, and the Every college in the state talks about how kids from the inner city have to end up in remedial classes in their colleges or they can't get into a technical program because they can't read and write and compute the way they need to do. So what is it we have to do differently? For argument's sake here, that the majority of kids in Baltimore City schools are going to come from poor homes for some time to come. They can battle and make that change, you know, open up the counties and cities so the kids can go to any school they want and mix it up and however we design that in the future and fight for that. But... But what about the pedagogy of teaching our children? But what has to change in order for our kids to succeed, to be able to read? And when people say to me, one more thing, I'm just not, sorry I'm going on so much, but when people say to me that, you know, that, that if, you, if your kid can't pass the fourth grade and they haven't learned how to read, they're toast. Well, that, to me, is baloney. If you look at the history of this country and people came out of enslavement, they couldn't read, they couldn't write, they were oppressed, they were enslaved. They came out and, and learned math and English and reading and Greek and more. So, you know, so you can learn. So, so, I'm, so what is the pedagogy that you would teach and others should be teaching that gives our kids this boost up? Right. So um, everything we know about effective pedagogy, uh, actually, this sounds cliche, but actually comes down to relationships, right? Effective relationships between a teacher and students. Now, the reason that sounds a little little hokey, perhaps, but it's actually reinforced by what we know um, from the neuroscience, right, in terms of how learning is actually working. We know more now about the biology of learning um, than we ever have through, through MRI technology, those kind of things. And there's a lot of kooky stuff that, that's connected to that because they're trying to sell you CDs to play to your child in the womb. But <laughs> um, <laughs> well, the mayor says that's why she I'm sorry, sorry. <laughs> but. Um, that I mean, it really is true, right? So that and that connects to things like uh, culturally responsive pedagogy. So kind of understanding um, the culture that that students are bringing with them uh, into the classroom. There's a, sometimes a tendency to think that children is kind of blank slates, uh, when in fact what learning is is an interaction between the experiences that a kid has walking in the door with these new experiences that you're exposing them to, called the curriculum, right? So that's what learning is. And so part of why I, I start there certainly is to connect back to something like class size, right? It's very difficult to build relationships, positive relationships with when a class of 42 people, right? Give me 18 and I can work with it. Maybe I need 12, right? You know, it, it just, it depends in that sense. And then I also have to realize that not everybody learns the same way. And certainly when I work with pre-service teachers, Kind of job one is for them to understand that not everybody learns the way they do. That's our tendency, right? We teach the way that we learn because that's kind of our myopic sense of, of how learning works. That's not true. If I can get somebody to understand that these, these folks might learn differently than they do, I can work with them, right? And we can get them there. So um, th those relationships are absolutely essential. A couple of things that we know is, is actually about um, teachers and their ownership of the curriculum. I know you asked me about pedagogy, but 
if I would argue kind of curriculum is first and pedagogy okay. comes next. All right. Define the difference real fast for our listeners when we, you just said. Right. So curriculum, I mean, the, the easy curriculum is what we teach. Pedagogy is how we teach. Right. Now, they are intricately connected. Right. If you change the what, um, one would hope you at least explore some changes in the how. Right. And in fact, the how you teach also in, in some ways affects the what. Right. So they're all interrelated. Um, but we know that if teachers have an ownership over the curriculum, meaning they're treated as professionals, they're able to develop um, that curriculum, perhaps in, in partnership with state standards and those kinds of things, um, that they are then more effective teachers. Right. So the other, you know, this is a whole other show, Mark, but, but the deprofessionalization of teachers is another huge problem. Right. We've tried to script it. We've added these high-stakes tests. We've devalued the expertise of teachers in evaluating what is best for the learners in their room and what makes the cut. Um, that is, uh, I think, a, a huge mistake in what we're doing in terms of education policy. And I also think it's related to um, an increasing um, teacher shortage, that we are, we are now in a national teacher shortage. So which is a crisis in itself, which we should talk about soon. Yeah. And, and, but, so you mentioned high-stakes testing. So it seems to me there's a contradiction between the notion of high-stakes testing and individualized learning. Right. Right? I mean, you can't... If, I mean, and I think that, again, I've made this argument the last 24 years in the air, that if, that if you look at our private school system, and we have a gigantic private school system here in the Baltimore area. Other places do too, but we're sitting here, so this Baltimore area has a gigantic right. private school system. Those kids in those schools where their parents pay 50000 bucks a year to send their child to every year, which is what it costs in mm -hmm. those private schools, um, they get individualized learning. And they don't have testing. Mm -hmm. They test maybe at certain points during the year, like we all got these mass tests, maybe get one in December, get one in June. Yeah. Nobody, and besides the testing, because we tr they trust the teachers to test the children to know what they know. So, you know, this, That's right. there's a contradiction between how you want to teach teachers to teach with individualized learning and people having to take these well, tests uh, you know, and many tests. Jonathan Kozel made this point um, several years ago. I'm not sure if you're familiar with, with his work. Oh, yeah, I'm like very that. familiar. I interviewed yeah. him several times. Um, but he made this. I saw him make it a couple times, but it's a really powerful point. He says, look, you know, if you want to know what we should be expecting for our um, schools here in Baltimore City. Just go to the brochures of all of the elite private schools in the area, right? Because you know what they're gonna talk about? You kind of hinted at this a minute ago. They're gonna talk about low class size. Right. They're gonna talk about art and music, individualized learning, right, facilities, right? That's what they're going to argue, right, is why you should spend all that money to come in that school. So. The argument, if you want to know what we should expect out of every school, that's how we start. That's, I've been saying that for a long and I, that We have to think about it that way. I mean, that's how you keep the class system in place. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, right? In our world. Right. But, you know, you, so people wave around a, a study that says class size doesn't matter, for right. example. Um, well, then tell me why Phillips Exeter and Andover and all of these, you know, the most elite prep schools in the country, the first thing they talk about is class size. You think they're wrong? <laughs> <laughs> so let, let's go back for a moment to, to, to talk a bit about, again, in the context of what we've been talking about, is where, what we can expect over the next four years. I mean, Betsy DeVos is 
somebody who wants to dismantle public education. I think that's she, right. Right? I think that's right. And she's running the Department of Education and probably will not fight when Trump says we're cutting your budget by 10 percent, 15 percent, whatever that is. I think I think it's fair to assume that um, she certainly said some different things during what was. A, um, I've never watched a confirmation hearing with that much attention as the Betsy DeVos hearing. Uh, it was uh, quite something. Um, <laughs> and of course, she said she, that's not what she wants to do. Um, but then she even had some pretty, sh- actually, very shaky answers, right? So one question was about the IDEA, which is about um, rights for students with special needs. And she said, well, we'd look at it. My understanding is your your job in the executive branch of government is to enforce the law as it exists. Used to be a social studies teacher, right? That's That's the job, <laughs> right? And you're in a confirmation hearing for the job, right? Now, you might be involved in revisions and, and those kind of things, but the answer to the question of will you enforce it is yes. And she wouldn't say it. And she made a state's argument, right? Well, the states, I think the states should probably be looking at that. Well, we want to look at it and make sure the states are given the proper. So the bill that didn't come out that you talked about that you were so concerned about that even our local congressman, and, uh, one of our local congressmen, Andy Harris, Republican, supported this bill. Mm-hmm. When I read the bill, thinking about you coming on the program today, uh, looked over the bill, is that this could become not just a bill, but this could become Betsy DeVos Trump policy that is pushed by the Department of Education as a way. If you want to take our money, this is what you have to do, just like they did with No Child Left Behind. If you want to take our money, you have to have these tests. You want these tests, you're not getting our money. You, if, you, if, if you don't accept this, these block grants we're going to give you to, to, to vouchers, you can't have our money. Well, that's right. And, and, and that is how all of those other legislation, uh, legislative actions have, have worked, primarily because of that, that federalism issue, that there is nothing about public education in the Constitution, right? So that's, a, that's the classic thing, but that's how it's been done, just like how we got seatbelts, right? It's like, if, if, you don't, you know, if you don't pass the seatbelt law, we're not going to give you any highway money. So everybody passed a seatbelt law. So that's, but this, this would be huge. Right. In the sense of we won't give you this money that right now, my only sense is is where that money is, is Title One. Right. So you what you would be doing would be um, damaging, again, the students with the most need, students coming out of poverty. Right. And saying we will take that money away. Right. And so first you take it away and say we'll, we'll replace it with this block grant idea although I'm imagining there'll be some other cuts too, what, what choice do you have, right? And that those block grants are for vouchers and for charters. Now, I believe, as we, we talked about, I believe this, this particular resolution is not coming out of committee in this session. That's a, a tweet that I looked at right before the show. Uh, but it could come back. It could certainly be rewritten as another bill. But if that was to pass, I actually think that's the end of public education in this country. Wow. Maybe that's where we should have begun the show and not ended the show. Maybe it's a way to begin it next time. Um, so this is this has been fascinating. So the bill, by the way, that, that Rob is talking about is the Choices of Education Act of 2017 is what it's called. Mm-hmm. Uh, House Bill, House Resolution 5, 610. So we'll, we'll link to that on our website so you can see what we've been talking about. Uh, Dr. Rob Helfenbein has been in the House with us this last part of our program. He's Associate Dean of the School of Education at Loyola University of Maryland. 
where he is also the interim chair, interim chair for teacher education. Well, thanks so much for stopping by the studio. Good to talk with you. My pleasure. Thanks.